a.m. on September 13th, 2016, and the woman is calling from Ashland, Ohio. Because of the nature of the crimes she endured, her identity is being kept private, and we will refer to her only as Jane Doe. Does he have a weapon? He's got a taser. Does he have a white male or a black male? Is he like six foot or is he shorter than that? He's like six one, six two. Do you know how much he weighs? Probably one seventy five. Are you injured? Little. What color is his hair? Brown. Do you know what color his eyes are? What's he wearing? Nothing right now. Is 
bathroom, he would do something to you? Yeah, because he had me tied up. Are you tied up now? Well, I, uh, yeah, but I kind of freed myself. Is he in the same room with you? Yes. Is it his phone you have? struggled to keep quiet, her abductor sleeping just feet away. But suddenly, something goes wrong. Do you know where he lives? officers approaching her location and warily makes her way out of the bedroom. 
Yeah, do you think you can get out? say the traumatized woman was completely nude and frozen from shock when they finally got the door open to save her. Once she snapped out of her fear enough to run outside, officers immediately went in to apprehend her abductor. Where is he? Okay, they have her. They found 40-year-old Sean Great lying face down on the bed inside a yellowing of house, surrounded by huge, filthy piles of trash, dirty clothes, and stuffed animals. Police initially believed they were dealing with an open and shut case of abduction and assault, but what the interrogation slowly uncovered will leave you horrified. Sean Great's crimes were far more extensive and even more disturbing than anyone could have ever imagined, and it's all revealed in his interrogations. In a variety of never-before-seen video clips and exclusive audio tapes, Sean will tell his own story. Sean was hastily helped into a pair of shorts, read his rights, and transported to the police division for questioning. And the more investigators learned about the perpetrator's past activities, the more they realized just how extremely lucky this Jane Doe was to have escaped with her life. Sean enters a small room, sparsely decorated, and enclosed by neutral walls and carpets meant to calm a suspect's mind and limit distractions. Not only does this help both interrogators and suspects focus, but it can also make interviewees more relaxed and willing to accept their fate. 
aside from a brief look around the room, during which he takes stock of his surroundings and may have noticed the camera with a brief eye contact. He sits quietly, with his head down staring at the table, barely moving a muscle. He likely knows he is being recorded. His hunched-over posture may be a subconscious attempt to make himself small, insignificant, and unnoticed, effectively attempting to hide in plain sight. His hanging head suggests shame. His tapping foot and jittery legs could either signify impatience or anxiety, but watching his body, his respiration appears to remain normal in both depth and pacing. The interrogator is about to enter, and you'll notice that right away, Sean doesn't hesitate to make eye contact. This is an act of curiosity. He's likely sizing the man up and immediately starting to create a mental image of them being opponents. The interrogator shows up with a notepad. This is standard, but in reality, all interrogations in the station are usually recorded, meaning that the folios carried by the detectives are generally props, although some items may be written down when pertinent to establishing timelines, motive, opportunity, intent, or means. Hi, David Lay. You are Sean. Great. Shaking hands and asking Sean's name, although he already knows it, is the interrogator taking the first step in building personal rapport. The behavior shows respect instead of animosity. It tells Sean, hey, I just want to talk. Let's have a cordial conversation. However, having a cordial conversation is no easy task when the interrogator's primary motive here is to establish the elements of abduction and sexual assault. You go by a different name? What's your proper name? Is it Sean? Is your proper name? The interrogator confirms the suspect's proper name, again to make sure he addresses him in a respectful way. Well, listen, man, we need to talk about and things that happened this morning because she's she's pretty shook up, yeah. So you tell me where you want to start. I mean, how'd you meet her? The interrogator has again made conscious efforts to avoid displaying any adversarial indicators, and he has strategically transitioned into the topic at hand by asking Sean where he wants to start and establishing an open-ended discourse. While this type of broad question can sometimes produce a rambling answer, it also tends to unfetter the suspect to say anything they want, which can be very advantageous. Unfortunately, in this case, Sean just asked to go to the bathroom. They got me right out of bed and I've been having to pee for a while. Who got you right out of bed? The cops and stuff. Okay. Uh, and I've been sitting in the vehicle. Uh, I was wondering if I could use the restroom. You want to go to the bathroom? Sure, we'll take you to the bathroom real quick. If, uh, did they search you? No. But, uh, no. Okay. Well, just hold on. Just it's actually, I was naked. That's why. I was naked. Oh, they put the shorts on they you? They put the shorts on me. So that's probably why they did it. So, yeah, I've been searched. Hold on Sean's demeanor is already visibly more at ease. He's leaned back with his arms up, yawning, stretching, wiping his eyes, and maintaining an open posture for extended periods of time. The difference compared to his earlier body language is striking. The threat of the unknown has subsided after this amicable first meeting. The interrogator's deliberate work to make him comfortable by not threatening or intimidating has gained him a measure of cooperation and possibly even trust from Sean. 
Sean returns and sits hunched over again, playing with his hands and placing his head on the table. All right, where were we? You tell me about where, how you met Crop Center. How long ago? About two months ago. Okay. What were you doing there? Uh, they do serve lunch every day, after Monday through Friday. Mm-hmm. I met her there. Uh, the Croc Center is a community service ran by the Salvation Army. Jane Doe met Sean there in late July. The pair would often have lunch, play tennis, and take long walks together, and she eventually grew to think of him as a goofy but kind older brother. Sean had mentioned wanting more than a friendship, but she turned him down, refusing to exchange phone numbers with the man and not letting him inside her apartment because of her strong religious boundaries. Sean says he had just gotten to Ashland when they became friends. Where are you from? Um, came from Mansfield. Okay. Child support issue there. I ran. It's just been a headache. What, you ran from what, the court over there? Because you owed money? The interrogator likely already knows substantial background information on Sean, but he wants to hear it straight from the suspect starting with how he came to live in the home he was found in. Whose house is it? I'm not too sure. So you just, like, squatting in there? Yeah. Okay, good. I appreciate your honesty, okay? This is kind of the, the, the steps that we need to take here. You know, you're being honest with me now. Yeah. Keep up the honesty and everything's going to go all right, okay? Immediately after positively reinforcing Sean's honesty and reminding him that it will be beneficial for him to tell the truth, the interrogator jumps right into the main issue at hand. So, how did you end up today? Well, we've been talking about marriage and stuff like that, getting really close. Okay. Yeah. Note the tension in Sean, while the interrogator assumes a very relaxed position. He wants to appear non-threatening to avoid making Sean nervous and keep him talking. Questions about his relationship with Jane remain open-ended, and the interrogator just lets Sean ramble and talk for the most part, only steering the conversation every now and then to help establish timelines. By getting details from the suspect, the police can develop good evidence to present to a prosecutor. We both maybe getting cold feet, I'm not too sure. But yeah, I'm for it. Like, the cold feet from her, you know what I mean? Like... She pushed me away. Then we get things back all right. And then you know, it's like cold feet in the air type. So it's like complications again. And so many complications. And then she talked about this guy named Daniel. And I just lost it. When, when was she talking about the guy named Daniel? It's about five years old, older, uh, like a five-year past relationship. That she had? Yeah, that she's like, oh, I'm going to wait for Daniel. And you know, like, uh, like she's just going to, like, had, like, say all that she's been saying and then out of the blue, just bring up another guy just to try to make me back away or something. I'm not too sure what she's thinking. Sean starts to establish his own motive, 
frustration over cold feet and jealousy over another man. However, his claim that he and Jane have been discussing marriage is completely opposite of her testimony. It makes no sense that such a conservative and cautious woman would jump into that big commitment with a man she'd only known for a handful of weeks. Sean is likely just trying to make their relationship seem more intimate than it really was, perhaps thinking it helps his case in some way. She's in doubt about marrying me, pretty much. Okay, but how did you, how long have you been with her? Like, today, how long has she been in that house with you? Uh, 24 hours. Okay. Where did you meet her to, br to bring her back to the house? Her place. At this point, the interrogator is starting to work the timeline backwards, from the crime to how long Jane was with Sean to where Jane came from. By determining how long the two had known each other and that Jane had gone to Sean's place of residence, he's attempting to establish Sean's intent to commit the crime. So how did you get there? I mean, just how do you get there to well, her apartment, okay? And then you take her where? Uh, we walked around and we went back to where I was staying. Okay. Just kind of started fooling around a little bit and then things got carried away. Explain carried away. Um, like, no, don't, you know what I mean? We are not ready for that. We, we, we've done, we've dealt with that before. She's Dealt saying, yeah. Now, what's she meaning when she's saying that? At this point, by establishing the existence of the conflict over whether or not the pair wanted to have intercourse, the investigator is starting to work on establishing not only motive, but also the elements of the crime of intercourse under force or threat without the consent of the victim. Now, what's she meaning when she's saying that? What? When she says no. What's she talking about? Here, the interrogator is clearly trying to establish that Sean knew Jane wasn't consenting by saying no. Watch how quickly Sean catches on to this and avoids using the specific word no. Oh, uh, she will say no. So they all stop it. You know, we're, we're not going to, we don't do this. We don't fool around because we're going to wait for marriage. You don't fool around. You're talking intercourse. Anything. Anything, okay. All right, no kissing or anything. I just, like my dad, just give her a little tap on the back, you know, just the conversations we have, you know, always like, uh, it's a nice conversation and stuff. So did you guys have Yeah, we ended up having The interrogator has successfully established element one, intercourse. He's now going to work on element three, lack of consent. Against her will? Well... It ended up she didn't like it, and she's really beating herself up about it. Part. Mm -hmm. so. It looks like you might have hit her a couple times. I did because I lost control. No, I do. I well, let's let's explore that. Okay. Okay. Why did you lose control? Now he's working on element two: force or threat. He's gotten Sean to admit that he lost control and hit Jane. Um, a lot of it's that she's marrying me and marry me and she won't marry me and you know, it's like, this is it. Mm -hmm. A lot of leading me on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I didn't just out of the air. what made me snap or took me out of my character. Where'd you hit her? 
Yeah, she's got a fat lip. Yeah. I uh, I swear I got that from. From punching her? Well, I her tooth. Oh. Had to have got me. Okay. Yeah. Her tooth had to have got me. Sean has now shown exactly where he hit Jane. So when when did this happen? About 24 hours ago. Okay. And you were in the middle of this when you punched her? and everything made up. Yeah. After you punched her? Yeah. Okay. Now, you know, we talked about honesty earlier. Okay. I mean, she's saying that she didn't want to have sex and that you punched her. She may not have wanted to have like afterwards. After what? After I hit her. How many times did you have sex? Um, it ended up being a few times within 24 hours. Mm -hmm. The interrogator is about to correct Sean's timeline and confront him with information that counters his story. Now she's saying that she's been with you since Sunday. Do you know what today is? Monday. Today's Tuesday. Okay, today's Tuesday. So you, um, if you thought it was Sunday evening. Okay, so we're talking over 24 hours Sunday you've been with her, right? Evening. Yeah, times since I've been asleep. So you've got, you've been with her since Sunday evening? Yes, Sunday evening. Okay. Can you tie down a time when you guys got together? Six o'clock, probably in the evening. Okay. Go straight to the apartment. Um, she's saying you tied her down to a bed. I mean, what's the deal with all the straps on the mattresses? I did tie her down. I abducted her. You abducted her? Yes. Explain that. For all this time that he's been trying to play it cool, Sean breaks a little here, using the harsh word abduct to describe his actions, like he realizes that it's no use to keep up the charade. The interrogator remains calm and proceeds with more open-ended questions like, explain that, to just let the suspect open up and provide all the facts and evidence the interrogator needs to establish the occurrence of the crime. In reality, Jane says she had agreed to come to Sean's place, because he said he had clothes to give her. Once there, she sat reading passages from the Bible while Sean went to the kitchen of the home. But when he came back, his demeanor had completely changed. He snatched the Bible away from her and said, You're not going anywhere. She tried to kick, punch, and push him away, but says everything she did, he did so much harder. She kept fighting until Sean began to choke her, and that's when she says she knew she couldn't escape. This was only the beginning of the horrible torment Sean would inflict upon her. A sexual assault expert would later explain that the details of this case reminded her of a duality commonly seen in abusers using the Jekyll and Hyde model. On the outside, on any given day, she says, abusers often seem like people you wouldn't be threatened by at all. But there's this persona that comes out from time to time, and usually towards the person that they want to see it. Games trying to get down to if she's going to marry me or not. But so you just held her there because you wanted to find out if she was going to marry you. A lot of questions and stuff, and yeah, it's very nightmare. Couldn't yeah. imagine her. You just wanted to make sure she didn't get away because you wanted her. No. What? Explain. I just wanted her to relax, spend some time with me. 
Well, it's kind of hard for somebody to relax if you're tying them down, don't you think? Yeah. Sean has now admitted to holding Jane there, tying her down, and eventually untying her. But when called out on how bizarre his reasoning is for this, he appears to smile or laugh just a little before quickly turning his face away from the interrogator. So how long was she tied down? Not long. How'd she get out? Or out from the ties? I untied her. Except for like, like last night, I just, I tied her legs down just a little bit. So you've tied her down at least twice? Yeah, just kind of like, just to slow her down because she's moving around a lot. Like, just relax. I'm, I'm going to take you home here. Jane says Sean actually tied her up at least three times in weird positions or to the bed. He was even so despicable as to shave a heart into her pubic hair. A restraint was placed around her neck at one time, and she was threatened not to move or she'd strangle herself. Well, how many times did you have sex with her when you tied her down? I never had sex with her tied down. Now, she's... Telling us something different. I mean, I she's never tied down, though, when I had sex with her. The investigator goes on to ask Sean how he got in the abandoned home in the first place, establishing facts for breaking and entering, which is likely another charge that the DA will add to the criminal case. But Sean suddenly changes the topic to interject with this repeated denial. I didn't have to sure they're tied up. So. Okay, well, that's... I mean, just, you know, I'm glad you're still, you're telling me. But you still did. I mean, you told me you abducted her. What does that mean to you? I mean, I care about her. Abducting somebody means that you care about her? Yeah, in this situation. Sean starts to stretch, acting oddly relaxed. Likely, the interrogator's own relaxed nature is being imprinted on Sean. It's also possible that at this point, Sean realizes he has no way to defend his actions and is slowly starting to accept the severity of the crime. Get her out of her apartment. Why do you have to get her out of her apartment? She needs to stay in and hide. Does she live with anybody? She stays in and hides. Behind the Bible all the time. Are you religious? Yeah, I believe in... Jesus Christ died Sean speaks with a lowered head while addressing religion and sin. This may be an indicator of remorse, but without other body language to go off of, I'd say it's more likely a lie. Sean being strangely judgmental of people and thinking he knows what is best for them is a common thread that will come up again many times. Here he is starting to reveal his true colors. So she's pretty religious? How many times do you think he has with her? To her, it may seem like a lot, but it lasts a long time. It gets a bit graphic as the interrogator asks about the specifics of the encounters, such as if protection was used and where seminal fluid would be found. He is looking for information on where to locate additional evidence or trying to see if the suspect, victim, and crime scene all line up. Sean's body language noticeably tightens up during this discussion. Okay. Okay. It's interesting how Sean walks back his story now, 
Before he claimed they had intercourse multiple times, now it seems he's making it out to be only once. How many times did you have sex? Um, it ended up being a few times within 24 hours. Mm -hmm. Now the interrogator is going to start prying into who else in the area Sean knows. He's fishing for a specific person, and it is obvious by how many times Sean dodges the question that he doesn't want to give a straight answer. Who else do you know from the, the apartment complex that lives in? Um, just her. Pretty much. Pretty much. Who else do you know? That uh, John guy. How many of his friends do you know? That's one the other day. Who's that? After letting Sean ramble for a while, the interrogator comes right out with what he's really asking. Now, the patrol guys are saying you know Aunt Elizabeth? Elizabeth. Um, met her one time outside. I guess I did uh, her. Well, I talked to a lot of a few people out there, but that was just like a moment. Um, Played some badminton. And I was playing badminton, and Elizabeth come outside, talk to us. Describe Elizabeth. Um, Elizabeth, she had like blonde hair, big blonde hair, big girl. Okay. Do you know her last name? No. Griffith. Sound familiar? Elizabeth Griffith, a 29-year-old local woman, went missing. Friends say Elizabeth was outgoing and friendly, spending much of her time at church or the Croc Center. She was happy, always singing wherever she went, and a compassionate person you could count on to lend a helping hand. But Elizabeth suffered from mental health problems, and a therapist who oversaw her day-to-day -day needs says she suffered from paranoid schizophrenia with mania. She would call a community mental health line about every other night as she would frequently have both auditory and visual hallucinations. At one point, it even escalated to the point that she put kerosene on her head and set her hair on fire. Elizabeth clearly needed frequent and regular help, and the counselors knew her well. But one day, she started missing appointments. She last called in on August 15th. On September 7th, her apartment was checked out by her therapist and a caseworker, and she was nowhere to be found. But her therapist knew her habits like the back of her hand and felt in her gut something was very wrong. When did you see her? When did you meet her? Oh, she was been probably two months ago when I first seen her, like seen her at talking to her at the yard playing badminton. Mm -hmm. And then we played badminton again, and then I just seen her come go in, come in and talk to the neighbors. Did you ever hook up with her? Did you ever try to? Knowing Sean's motive in Jane's case, the interrogator pointedly asks Sean questions to gauge if he had a physical interest in Elizabeth. No, not like that. Not like that? How? Oh, I don't see her like that, hooking up with her. How do you see her? Just trying to find her way. I don't know. What do you mean? I mean, just trying to... I don't know. She talked constantly, just for like the five minutes while I was playing Batman. What's she talk about? Uh, the uh, the mental hospital and stuff that she's dealing with. Yeah, she had some issues. 
She's missing. That's what I heard. Sean has admitted he was aware of Elizabeth's disappearance. The interrogator is now setting aside the case with Jane and digging for more information on a possible additional crime related to Sean. The interrogator wants to know why and how Sean was already aware Elizabeth was missing. He sees a hole in Sean's story and presses a little more. How'd you hear that? Um, through Tracy at the Croc Center. Tracy. Mm-hmm. Um, the told you that? Who's the friend? I think her name is Susan. What does she say about Elizabeth? She just don't know. Don't know what? She's thinking that she was at a mental hospital somewhere. Mm. She don't know. I mean, well, usually if that's the case, they we can find that out pretty easy. Oh. So I, I mean, yeah, we don't think she's at a mental hospital. If you know where she's at, or if you've had any contact with her, you know, just keeping along the same lines of being honest this is when you need to tell me yeah so when was the last time you had contact with her i had no contact with her because it kind of makes me wonder if since <laughs> talked about her and you've talked about her if you haven't seen her since she's been missing further searching had only confirmed that elizabeth was in trouble as asking around the community revealed that nobody had seen her for weeks and one woman who says Elizabeth was like a younger sister to her shared that the woman had been in a real giddy mood, but anxious, like she really needed to talk about something. Her friend assumed she'd met somebody. Elizabeth attempted to contact this woman on August 16th, but unfortunately, the friend wasn't available to pick up the call. After that, Elizabeth vanished. That night at 11 p.m., though, she had also made a call to another number, one belonging to Sean Great. The interrogator carefully but clearly starts the process of accusing Sean of having something to do with the other missing woman. Kind of makes me wonder if you didn't have something to do with her being missing. I understand. With the situation. Yeah, I mean, it kind of looks funny. Sean looks away and puts his head down for a few moments. Looks strange. Where is she? I mean, you know what's going on? No, I really don't. I'm hoping you can help me. Sean seems suspicious that the police already know what's going on. You'll soon see exactly why this is. Because if if there's any kind of connection, you know, with you and Elizabeth, it's, it's very important that we find Elizabeth because she's got some psychological issues. She's got some health issues, some medical issues. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, if you were to know where she was and we could find her, that would go a long way to helping. Yeah. You know yeah, where I she's wish, at? Wish I could help. I don't know what to say right now. Well, I mean, you could go, but you could start by just continuing to be honest. I mean, you know, you told me that you considered yourself that you abducted Did you abduct Elizabeth the same way? No. Two different people. Well, I know they're two different people, but the circumstances are the, kind of the same. After the interrogator draws clear parallels between the two women's cases, 
and reminds Sean that he's already admitted that he would and has abducted somebody. He goes quiet and waits to see if Sean will break the uncomfortable silence, perhaps by acknowledging the similarities between the disappearances or offering incriminating information. So how do you feel about what you did to Sean wasn't cracking, and so the interrogator tries a different tactic, dropping the topic of Elizabeth completely. This visibly relaxes Sean. However, he now has to directly think about his actions. What, think, what do you think should happen to you? Just put me in the cell and away the key. Why? She's able to forgive me. Well, you know, forgiveness is a big part of religion. Sean mentions forgiveness, but the interrogator quickly reminds him of religious faith, cueing him to think about doing the right thing. That's what I'm saying. You know, if, if you know anything about Elizabeth, then it's a perfect time for us to talk about it, get to the bottom of it, and see what we can salvage. The interrogator will now share, for at least the second time, that he thinks Sean had something to do with Elizabeth's disappearance. I think, I think it's very possible you had something to do with Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Sean continues to look away, tense and hunched down when Elizabeth is brought up. He attempts to make himself smaller in these actions, in stark contrast to his wide, addy stretches earlier on. This anxious response clearly indicates deception. Whether it's an attempt to withhold information or an indication of guilt remains to be seen. Oh, just got chill right now. It's so cold. I don't know. We're still trying to deal with. What? I don't know. I'm confused about Elizabeth. Sean says he's confused. The interrogator immediately sits back in a more open and less imposing posture. When a suspect claims confusion, it's often an indicator that they either are having problems maintaining a lie or that they are about to expose their own lie. By creating a more open environment, the interrogator subtly provides a space for Sean to also open up. Well, I don't want to, I don't want to confuse you. Let's, I mean, let's deal with and put that to bed then, and then we'll move on. So what, what do you want to talk about with still? Just wondering, wondering what was going to go on, you know, I, I know, I'm just glad that, you know, she's okay. Yeah, she's okay. I mean, she's mentally, you know, she's a little messed up physically. She's injured. I mean, you know, you've got the cut on your hand every one time. Well, she's got some bruises on her arms, too. Where, where did you tie these straps into her, to her arms, to her body? Maybe then. Where at? Point to your body where you tied the straps. Well, I did this. This arm up through here, right? You put her arm under there? Yeah, I put my arm, her arm under her leg. Mm-hmm. And then tied on her wrist to here. At this point, the interrogator is building the story against Sean, 
asking about her physical injuries and specifically probing into the means and the methods Sean used to restrain Jane. Sean says he used a scarf and maybe a shirt to tie her down. So you tie her arm under her leg. Why that position? One tie. She's unable to move. Is she tied down to the mattress from the other side? No, not until I had to leave. So you left at some point. When was that? About 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock. A.M. or P.M.? P.M. On Sunday or Monday? Monday. So when you left, you tied her down to the mattress. Why? You'll notice that as the topic stays on Jane, Sean keeps his eye mostly on the interrogator. He's already on the hook for her case, so he has nothing left to hide at this point. Just for cigarettes. I just left for cigarettes. I came back and untied her. But why did you tie her when you left? So she wouldn't leave. So she would, couldn't leave? Yeah. So what cigarettes did you smoke when you went to Monday night to Duke? Marlboro Black 100s. You, you bought the Marlboro Black 100s? The interrogator asks Sean his choice of cigarettes. Discarded butts can link a suspect to a crime scene and also establish DNA matches. So when you come back, you untie her from the bed, but you keep her arm tied under her leg? Mm-hmm. No. Well, I untied her ball. When she gets there Sunday evening, at what point do you initially tie her up when she wants to leave? At what point does she want to leave and you tie her up? I didn't tie her up at all. I pretty much, she just sat there with me. On Sunday? Okay. But at some point, you said she wanted to leave and you had to stop her from leaving. When did that happen? Yeah, but I didn't tie her up. I just held her and asked her to hold, like, just for us to hold each other. Held her? What, describe the hold? Just lay down and hold each other. Just, you, you mean hold her down on her mattress? Chest, right on my, she's her head on my chest and said, laid there. I mean, she might not, she might have probably been unwilling to do that. Why would she? just wanted to hold her. Okay, you wanted to hold her, but she didn't want to be held, is that what you're saying? She wanted to be held. But no, that's not what you just said. You said but that she couldn't let it happen. Because she, she wanted it. You think she wanted it. The interrogator is reestablishing that Sean used force against Jane, but also poking holes in his timeline in order to clear up what happened and when. However, you'll notice that his tone is getting increasingly combative the longer Sean refuses to be forthcoming. This may be a deliberate tactic that he's employing, since being nice hasn't pulled much out of Sean, or it may just be his genuine frustration showing through at Sean's attempts to justify what he did to Jane. Either way, it's going to backfire and make Sean shut down a bit. She's told you she didn't want it. You admitted earlier she said she didn't want it. She says it's not right. Okay, but that's telling you she doesn't want to have it, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. It's not right. But you didn't want to let her go, so you just hold her. When you say hold her, you're hugging her? Actually, I didn't even do that. What did you just do? sit down. Well, I'm, see, you're kind of all over the board here, dude. I mean, you told me that you held her. I mean, I, I 
never held her or like restrained her. At some point, you did. Well, at that point, at that first initiative. Okay. At the very first time. Just, just stay here, relax. You know, I, I did joke about abduction, and then I ended up being abducted. How do you How do you joke about it? But I should I should abduct you. Keep you up. So you stay with me for a few days. And then it ended up happening that way. So at what point did you actually have to tie her down when she decided she wanted to leave? Other than the time when I left, I tied her down. I tied her down. The interrogator continues to firmly establish that Jane was physically restrained and held against her will. This is where the interrogation footage ends, but we do have audio of the rest of this interview. Sean continues to make far-fetched claims that he planned for Jane to escape all along. Other than the time when I left, I tied her down. I tied her down just a little bit before last night. And then I fell asleep, which is good. That's the way I planned it. Barely tie her up. I fall asleep. She gets to leave. So you, you planned it that way? Yeah, I wanted her to leave. I knew she was going to leave. When? This morning? I knew that she would be able to untie herself. She only had one strap around her legs. That's it. So you, how long ago did you plan this? It just happened. Okay. But last night when you tied her up, the way you planned it, you explained that. Yeah, I wanted her to be to leave. Okay. I already told her, fall asleep, just leave. Did you think you'd worry about getting in trouble? Yes. I have to deal with the consequences. The interrogator is clearly not buying this story. Jane would later testify that she did have several conversations with Sean, where he promised he would let her go soon. But it never happened. What's more, she says she couldn't move at all without him jumping into reaction, that she did not eat anything the entire duration of her entrapment, and that she wasn't even allowed to go to the bathroom without Sean walking her there. With these details in mind, Sean's claims that he intended for Jane to get free are likely a ploy to make him look marginally better. However, the interrogator cuts him off and forces him to look at the fact that his actions indisputably meet the definitions of some very serious crimes no matter how much he might try to reframe them. You know, you talked about you abducted her. You've, you've had sex with her against her will, too. Yes or no? Yes, I did. What do you call that? And how many times do you think you raped her? It might not have been after, after the first time. I don't know if it was under her or after, against her will. Or if she was just going with it. My guess is she wasn't just going with it. We can already see Sean embodying the signs of a typical abuser. Enthusiastic consent means looking for the presence of a yes. But when Sean speculates that Jane may have just been going with it, it suggests he believes the absence of a no suffices. So she enjoyed it. What's that? So she enjoyed the other times? No, I don't Because it think... wasn't against her will. The first time may have been... The first time may have been against her will? Well, the first time was, pretty much. So definitely you're telling me the first time was against her will. 
Okay, good. I would say pretty much. Explain how that happened. Why do you think that was against her will the first time you had sex? Because uh, she kept saying, no, it's not right, you know what I mean? And, and so how did you make it against her will? Trying to get talking to her, talking her into it, and right, like, you know, touch her belly, like, standing up. Like, uh, I was just, just trying to give you a hug, you know, I was trying to talk myself into, like, to get, to get close to her, you know, and I just want to give you a hug, you know, it's, we've got to move beyond this. Some psychological researchers have argued that assault is not about the enjoyment of the act itself, but more about dominating someone. While it certainly may be a combination of both for Sean, it seems that more than anything, Jane's pure virtue, strict boundaries, and strong aversion to premarital intercourse, unfortunately, felt like a challenge to him. Sean goes on to talk about where he's lived since arriving in town around June or July. He constructed a makeshift fort in the woods, and at one point broke into two campers where he stole valuables and even lived in one while the owners were gone. He broke into a flea market, which is where he stole tasers, along with other property. He also took up residence in a former Hess and Clark building, which was supposed to be vacant before breaking into the house he was apprehended at, which had electricity but no water. The interrogator asks what friends he's made while in the area, and Sean's response is sickening. Who do you call friend over here? I don't know if she'd call you a friend at this point. She still loves me, though. I mean, honestly, she cares for me. She wants the best for me. That's what's so bad about the situation more than anything. That yeah. She still cares. Almost. She cares about me, though. She doesn't want nothing to do with me no more, but she cares. Well, yeah. Yeah, that's a good thing. She has a good heart. A good heart's a sign of a good Christian. Yeah. One of the diagnoses Sean would receive after later testing is personality disorder, which includes many traits, narcissistic being among them. This is likely one underlying cause of Sean's lack of empathy for Jane's suffering and the way he seems to feel entitled to her forgiveness. You think you've got a good heart? Yeah, I think you are. But you know what? We're all confused at some point, man. And a lot of times you just need a trigger to go forward, to move forward, put things behind you and move forward. And, you know, this could be your trigger. If you realize you've been doing the wrong stuff and doing some things you're not proud of, you know, this is, this is that trigger. The interrogator puts aside his own feelings about what Sean is saying in order to stay relatively positive, framing Sean's cooperation and honesty about his bad deeds as a sort of opportunity to repent. Now he will try to play off that to get more confession out of Sean. What else has been going on that you're not proud of? Sean dodges the question by talking about how he's been struggling to keep a job. He worked briefly at a Save-A-Lot store. I have to quit. I can only keep a job for so long because eventually the police report's going to come back that I have a job here. I understand. 
I just kept thinking, like, dang, it's probably about time for the police to come here and get me for my warrant. For your child support warrant? So you're just, you don't want to keep a job for three weeks because you think the law is going to find you and arrest you on the warrant? Just a situation, not normally in the past, no. Sean has three kids. He was actually jailed at least once for not paying child support and reports that he was in and out of jail between roughly 2005 to 2015. He became a drifter who roamed from place to place. Next, Sean says he has been stressed lately and the interrogator asks him why. Just trying to get it right. Well, let me help you get it right. How are you gonna help me get it right? Tell me, what do you need to get right? And I'll help you. I could do that through prayer. Yeah. You try that that way. It's the only way. However, if you thought Sean was about to finally crack or express some form of sincere remorse for anything he's done, think again. Here's how he steers the topic. You could help me if I could have coffee or anything like that. You need something to drink? It would be wonderful. What do you need? What do you want? Can I have coffee? I get you. I'm used to caffeine right now. I can get you a coffee. Thank you want anything you. in the coffee? Whatever you like. And then you tell me. You like it black or you want a little cream? I am a little spoiled. What's that? I am a little spoiled. Cream and sugar would be nice. A little bit cream and sugar is fine with me. Sean breaks the silence that follows by bringing up Jane again, saying she'll be okay out of nowhere. The interrogator plays along to see what Sean will say. Well, the good thing about she's here. She got out this morning, you know, because you planned on not tying her tight, right? So she could get away this morning? Yeah, told her. Get away. Okay. Let's go. So, I mean, she's good. We know where she's at. So, I hit her once. It's good. Even though it might look different. I did isolate and connected pretty good. I didn't mean to. Well, well I don't know. Like she got me. I don't know if it's an accident. I mean. It wasn't an accident. You hit her closed fist? Yeah. And you got her right on that knuckle. That's where people. That's what happens. I mean, that's the knuckle that you're going to connect with when you throw a punch. I've thrown a few in my time. And that's what happens because that nickel, knuckle sticks out there. Yeah. You don't. You don't make a fist and accidentally punch somebody. The interrogator is about to perfectly verbalize one of the signature traits of abusers. Their tendency to deny or minimize the seriousness of their violence and its effect on the victim. Pay attention also to how Sean tries to paint the narrative that this was an isolated incident, which was out of character for him. It will later become clear that this is very disingenuous. Never done it before. Well... Yeah, just, you know, don't try to minimize it. I mean, you punched her. Yeah, you're right. Oh, man. Minimizing it, that's good. Honesty is the best policy at this point. I agree. The interrogator cleverly gets his foot in the door by getting Sean to agree that honesty is better than minimizing his actions. Now he'll use this opportunity to pry deeper. So what else about have you kind of minimized, you want to get off your chest. 
I didn't make her do some things. Like what? Yeah, at first, yeah, I wasn't too sure she... I knew she wasn't for it. But her mind was just always thinking about it all the time. And that's what the problem was. How do you know her mind was thinking about it? Because we talk about it a lot. There's a topic every day. Having Dealing with this battle and just our desires that we need to even get married. Sean is now moving towards victim blaming and placing his own evaluation on what he thinks Jane wanted. One psychologist experienced in working with those convicted of crimes at a state prison has explained that many of them, especially those with antisocial personality, which Sean himself was also diagnosed with, exhibit thinking errors with a tendency to distort reality. This can cause them to interpret an innocent and friendly interaction as a sign of interest. In Sean's case, he really takes these presumptions to the next level. So what did you make her do that she didn't want to do? Well, I went by her lustful desires. Shared something with, wonderful with her. Now the interrogator starts to get into the graphic specifics of the assault. I won't play much for you, but there are a few things that Sean says that stand out as particularly bold and insensitive. Keep in mind that Jane has stated she was sexually assaulted in every way imaginable. So explain to me what you did to her that she didn't want to do. Here the interrogator asks Sean to tell him step by step how he forced Jane to perform these acts. This proves to be a huge obstacle for Sean, as almost a minute of silence goes by before he can muster up any words. I just told her to. I just told her to. She, she didn't want to first. No, just do it. We're already gone this far. So where did this happen at? Was she tied down? No, I tied her down when I left. This is the first sign of real emotion we're seeing from Sean's entire interview thus far. It's hard to tell how genuine this slight breakdown is, as he still seems conflicted on whether or not what he did was wrong. So did you threaten her? I was trying to think that I threatened her. I don't think I did threaten her. We're reverting back to the task of concretely establishing the element of force or threat. In a few moments, the interrogator will cut off Sean's denials, which is a common technique. What'd you say to her, the threat? Just told her to do it. I didn't, I, I didn't think I had to threaten her. I didn't have to threaten her. Remember what we talked about minimizing. Tell me what you told her to make her do it. Because you've already said she did it against her will. How'd you make her do it against her will? What'd you say to her? Well, I'm, I think I pretty much grabbed her. Sean is now prompted to speak on what happened after he assaulted Jane. And I get all scared and don't know what to do. And what do you end up doing? So you think of a plan. Uh, I was going to walk her home. Well, first we thought about just turn myself in. I was going to do it. You were going to turn yourself in why? Right thing to do. So why didn't you? Because I just knew it would be 
be it. I just wanted to see her for another day. Okay. So what happened? How do you keep her there for another day? Just sit there in the room with her. Most of the time, so later on, I just wanted to go get cigarettes. I needed to. I couldn't just sit there. So that's when you tied her up. Yes, that's when I tied her up. Sean would later reveal that he also took Jane's keys, went to her apartment, and stole some money from her wallet. At this point, the interrogator seems to be feeling he's gotten all he can out of Sean about Jane for the time being. So he's going to transition back to Elizabeth. He knows all the signs are adding up, and now he makes one final big push, using pressure this time, to get Sean to admit he knows something. So, you know what we're going to do today is, we've got a lot of work to do, we'll, have to, we'll go through that house and we're going to collect some evidence. And what I'm afraid is, one of the places that we go through today, because we'll go through the Hessen Clark building, because you stayed there. We'll look on the railroad tracks, because you stayed there. I'm afraid that we're going to find some evidence related to Elizabeth. And if that's the case, and you haven't talked to me about it, and been straight up with me, it's not going to look good. So I want to give you the opportunity, before we dig into that, be honest with me. About Elizabeth. About Elizabeth. So what do you know about her disappearing? There's almost another full minute of silence. Often interrogators deliberately refrain from breaking these tense and awkward gaps so that the suspect is forced to be the first to speak. But Sean surprisingly just lets it run on without getting too uncomfortable. And the interrogator jumps back in perhaps reasoning that an innocent person would immediately be able to deny their involvement and not have to think about their answer this long. What do you know about her? She's crazy. How do you know that? More silence. And the interrogator keeps prodding Sean to help himself by telling the truth. Then, Sean slips up. You don't know where she is? No. Where's she at? This is the second time that Sean has expressed disbelief that law enforcement doesn't already know where Elizabeth is. You're probably wondering why, and so was this interrogator. You see, when officers first apprehended Sean at the abandoned home, they couldn't have known that they were actually stumbling into the lair of a serial killer. In reality, their suspicions about Sean having done something to Elizabeth are correct, and the missing woman is right under the investigators' noses. And the first and most obvious place they'd look, the very house where Sean had kept Jane captive. Police just hadn't found her yet at the time of this conversation because search warrants were still being drafted. So what we're going to see is the bizarre dynamic of a confused murderer who believes officers must have already found his victim's body and are just stringing him along to see what he'll spill. And an interrogator who genuinely has no idea where Elizabeth is. Sean then starts to say some really eerie but cryptic things about Elizabeth's status. She's uh, free. No more problems. You don't have to cry no more. How'd you set her free? She jumped on my back. What happened? She kept crying to me. See how much she made this world and everything. She was just died. 
John starts to stay quiet for so long in between speaking that you can imagine he's having an internal battle over whether or not to keep fighting or just come clean. I gave up my life a long time ago. I gave up the fight. Do things that they can't do yourself. How did you help her do something she couldn't do? Did you help her kill herself, Sean? Well, I try to be encouraging for. I don't really leave people alone. Just not even worry about talking to nobody. You know, just isolate yourself for a little while, and then. Whoever gets away, you see who your true friends are. So where's she at, Sean? She's got a lot of family that's worried about her. I'm worried about her. I know you know where she's at. She makes a lot of people worry about her. Sean insists he wants to cooperate, but continues to deny he knows where Elizabeth is. Sean. Am I going to find her in one of those places that I told you about? Let's not let me get to that point. I can tell that you know where she's at. You've said you helped her find peace. Didn't talk to her. Mm -hmm. When did you talk to her? It was with us. When was this? Elizabeth has been missing for several weeks at this point, since mid-August, so already there is a huge problem with Sean's story that they spoke just one week previously. He continues to claim that helping her find peace just meant talking to her and allowing her to clear her mind of her worries and relax. The interrogator reminds him that he's already made it sound like he knows where she is. Sean continues to play dumb, and this is when we see a tactic shift. Patrol said you've had some dark thoughts lately. What's that about? Did you tell an officer this morning you've had some dark thoughts? Uh -huh. Did you tell some people you had some dark thoughts lately? No. Have you had dark thoughts? No. Thoughts about hurting people or? No. No dark thoughts. Remember what I said earlier, that we're going to go through all those places, man. That's fine, yeah. It's fascinating to listen to Sean's feigned confusion as he straight up lies to the interrogator's face. I thought I buried you already would. Are we going to find Elizabeth in there? No. Any of those places? Where are we going to find her? I'm sure you guys already been through her apartment. She's not in there. Hiding, hibernating. Where do you think she's at? I don't know. That's what I was Sean then bizarrely starts pitting Jane and Elizabeth against one another, claiming that Jane dissed Elizabeth and made her feel bad. The interrogator doesn't let him go off on this tangent any longer, though. Instead, he inquires if Sean knows about another unnamed missing woman from the area. Sean rapidly changes the subject to go on a rant about an amber alert he'd heard, but the investigator steers him back on topic once again. Any person that's gone, that's an issue. 
It's oh, a big issue. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Kind of like what you did to is kind of a big it's issue. Big issue. Yeah. Elizabeth's a big issue. Yes. Yes. So wait, no, you said someone else? Mm -hmm. That's a big issue. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. All from the same area that you've been hanging out. Oh. All in the same time frame that you've been here. This is what I'm telling you, dude. Yeah. Wow. You know, we're going to be looking at a lot of places today. I'm going to be straight up with you. Because I think you're bullshitting me. What's up? If I link any of these women, these other two women, to you and the places you've been, you're going to have even bigger issues. And this is what I'm saying. This is the opportunity for you to put everything out on the table. I've treated you fairly. Do you agree or not agree? I agree. So if you know more about Elizabeth and another woman, Please use this opportunity. And let's talk about it. Let's find them. Let's get closer for their family. And let's move on. Yeah, I mean, I understand that. Closure. So, where's Elizabeth? I'm not too sure where Elizabeth is. Do you know what happened to her? No. The interrogator attempted to appeal to Sean's emotions by bringing up the fact that the grieving families of the women need closure. But it doesn't appear to sway Sean in the slightest. The investigator finally just instructs Sean to sit alone, drink his coffee, and think hard about if he wants to tell the truth. But as soon as he returns and asks if Sean is ready to come clean about anything, Sean immediately goes back to Jane instead of addressing Elizabeth. He ends up revealing a few more sickening details about how he violated her. For hours. For hours? In a way, but she wasn't saying no. She says you took some video of her from your cell phone. Yeah. Yeah, why? Acted like a video. Might, yeah, there might have been a video. So where's your cell phone? Filming a video of his victim in the act is likely a way of trophy taking for Sean. A way for him to relive his crime later on. So what are you telling her? Are you, how are you talking to her? Be nice. No, no. I'm not playing that game. I mean, I ain't yelling at her. Well, what are you saying to her? I just don't say much to her. You know? I know what you're saying. How did I act and how did I boss her around? I mean, I didn't really ask for much. But once we started, you know, she liked it and everything. You know, I don't really believe that. I think I turned myself in. That she would forgive me and possibly marry me. She told you that? You think maybe she's just telling you that to get you off of her? Well, yeah. Yeah. Of course. I understand that. Mm -hmm. She's saying. She's talking survival mode. You know, she's afraid something's going to happen to her. She's afraid she's going to get hurt. Yeah. Possibly killed. Yeah, I understand. Was she, her nerves and everything. Right, yeah. So she's just telling you things to get you to let her go. Yeah, I understand. She's saying that you were putting pills in her mouth. Jane testified that Sean forced her to take muscle relaxers. Sean tries to tell the interviewer he actually just gave her energy drink shots because she wanted a boost. 
Sean admits to duct-taping Jane's mouth shut so she wouldn't yell when he tied her up and left the home. He's asked about a stun gun and tries to brush it off as something he got a long time ago and says he doesn't think it still works, that he just uses it as a flashlight. If this stun gun is the same device that Jane accidentally set off during the 911 call, then this obviously doesn't add up, and the interrogator isn't convinced. Did you tell her it was a stun gun? Oh, well, she already knew what it was. How'd she know what it was? How'd she know it was a stun gun? Because I, I carried it in my pocket to replace. So you've mentioned it before that it was a stun gun? Yeah, I showed her how it works. I asked her if she needed one. Needed it. So you've showed her it zapped? So it works? It used to work. I showed her about two weeks ago. I don't even know if it works now because a bunch of candle wax. Where'd you get it? Sean beats around the bush concerning Elizabeth for a few more minutes, and then this conversation comes to a close. The interrogator was successful in getting Sean to admit to non-consensual intercourse with Jane by means of force or threats. Intimidation alone can be sufficient to establish threats of force. Sean's violent behavior, absent the abduction and restraining of Jane, could be sufficient for this element. But the interrogator was able to procure even more information about specific physical items used to restrain Jane and elaboration on the story of how Jane was against premarital intercourse, at least with Sean, which builds even more on the concept of there being no consent on Jane's part. However, he was unable to secure a concrete confession concerning Elizabeth. But a little later that morning, Detective Kim Major steps in to try her hand at cracking the suspect. And this is where things get really interesting, because the vast majority of interrogation media we received for this case is between these two. You see, Major took a different approach with Sean. Date, September 13th, 2016. Time, 10.53 a.m. Detective Major preparing to interview Sean. She is immediately very kind with Sean, saying it's nice to meet him, asking if he's okay, and getting him coffee. All right, bud. All right, you're going through a lot, okay? A whole lot. So, I talked Okay, so, I want to touch base about a few things. Um, boy, she's got a, a beautiful heart, doesn't she? That sounds like she does. Sounds like um, there was a lot of maybe reading the Bible with her, and it looks like you were trying to find your walk your walk with Christ there. Am I, am I right? Okay. And wow, does she know her stuff when it comes to that, doesn't she? Yeah. She's on my case all the time, which is good. Yeah, it is. It is. Here's what I know, okay? I know that sometimes good people do stupid things and sometimes things kind of just explode. One bad thing kind of turns into another bad thing. So here's the deal, Sean, and I'm, I'm Kim. You can just call me Kim, okay? It, I don't think we can really be defined by a little block of time in our life, all right? Um, we, can, we can make mistakes, and we're not going to be defined by that. Sometimes things just happen. Sometimes good people do stupid things. Major has already separated Sean from his actions setting a scene where he can still think of himself as a good person who just happened to do a few bad things. Her compassionate tone may seem like such a small thing, but research shows establishing a friendly foundation can be absolutely vital to the success of these interviews. 
A study done in the mid-2010s interviewed 34 interrogators who had handled international terrorism suspects to find out which strategies were most effective at gaining information. They discovered that disclosure was 14 times more likely to occur early when a rapport-building approach was used. Confessions were four times more likely when interrogators struck a neutral and respectful stance. Neutral and respectful are the perfect words to describe how Major approaches this daunting interrogation. I appreciate your candidness. I appreciate your openness that you've already, that you've already been trying to explain some things. Um, it looks like you, know, you have a conscience. You feel you have some feelings. I can see that. I saw you tear up when I came in. So... The detective uses positive reinforcement to praise Sean on the behavior she wants him to exhibit more of. Hearing that she sees him as an honest and good-hearted person with a conscience will make him want to live up to that image, even though the detective probably doesn't really hold those opinions of him. Listen as she pries to see if Sean holds any remorse offering him the perfect chance to say he's sorry. If you could say something to her, what would you tell her? Well, I've been telling her that she's hanging in there, she's doing her good job, don't ever change. Would you tell her you're sorry? Oh, yeah. Well, I can see that you're hurting. Um, I, I can see that, so I can see that you... Go ahead, what are you thinking? I should be hurt more, but I'm just trying to stay strong. Yeah. The way Major prompts and comforts Sean feels almost like the way you'd speak to a child. And although he half-heartedly agreed that he was sorry when asked, his next words, a response to being reminded how religious and strict Jane was in her values, shows that in his mind, his actions were still at least somewhat justified. Yeah, she doesn't do the phones, no exchange of phone numbers. She can't come in her apartment. She's she's pretty strong on that. Let me ask you this. It makes me wonder what she's hiding from as well, because her fiberverse is all over her walls and everything. But it's a, she can just walk in to where I'm staying with no problem. It's okay. Like, it's like I can't go into her place, which is fine and dandy. Yet Major is determined and continues prodding Sean to see if he himself can realize and admit that his victim was never a willing participant in what happened to her. When she came in your house, do you think there's any part of her that thought she would have sex with you? That's an honesty question. Do you think, do you think she thought she was going to have sex or do you think she thought she was helping another human? Be honest. For her sake, be honest. She's torn. John goes on to confess that he found Jane more intriguing because of how much she pushed him away. He admits he hit her once and says she flipped out, but then tries to downplay the severity of the strike. Well, I don't know if it's a tap. Her mouth's hurt, right? But I think sometimes when things get out of control, sometimes stuff happens like that, right? I don't know. 
in that way. I don't get out of control. The further we dig into Sean's story, the less this statement that things don't normally get out of control holds up. At this point, Major makes an effort to differentiate Sean from the other bad guys she usually speaks with. When you say that she's torn, when I'm looking at you, I, I, I can kind of see in. Now, sometimes I talk to people who, you can't, you can't see in somebody, they don't have a conscience. When I'm looking at you, you, you have feelings. You have, you have some feelings, and I can see them. The interrogator couches her negative statements within a positive buildup to make them more palatable and lessen the chance of Sean going on the defensive. Here's what I'm seeing with you. One of your strong points is, is you kind of are stand-up. Like, you might make mistakes, but you don't want to hold your mistakes inside. In this situation... The whole thing's a mistake. I mean, forcing yourself on somebody to have sex when I don't want to is a, is, is a mistake, right? But Sean dodges Major's question with a bizarre rant that essentially sounds like he's trying to imply a common thought process of sexual abusers. She was asking for it. That wasn't an intention. It's like a simple tap. I get like, you know, like, Sorry, type of thing. Yeah. Kind of like, oh yeah. It's like, geez, it's okay if she just sits on my lap. I sit down. She just sits on my lap. It's okay, but I, I can't give her like a pat, a shoulder, or anything. The stuff we're talking about. And she went like, because mm-hmm. she doesn't want the physical piece. Yeah, on her time. Major says she's talked with Jane and just wants to make some sense of things. She kind of told me what what you were saying, like, I want to let you go. And I think you guys were putting a a bag together for her. But then the fear is, this was actually last night, not this morning, but like last night you were talking about letting her go, but then wondering what's going to happen then. Are we going to, are they going to come for me? They're going to, you know. Like, like nobody wants to go to jail. The interrogator goes back to emphasizing honesty, letting Sean know that it's still worth it to tell the truth and allow the victim to heal. How can I take back what I did? You can let her put value on it. You can let her know that, you know what, I did what I did was wrong and it's not your fault. Because really, it's not her fault. And that's where the man up thing is. You're... You're a manly guy. You're, that's, that's the piece of you that's, that is, there's a good piece there. The guy that stands up to says, that says, I did what I did. It was wrong. She didn't deserve that. And that I want her to be okay. For her, for her to be able to put value on it, to 100% honesty is there. Needed what? Needed to have. In a way, I mean. Okay, and then, and that's honesty. Don't and don't feel like, hey, if you if you have a thought like that, not it's okay. She's just battling all the time. She's but, battling like with the lost will desires, and it's a roadblock. Studies show that the fear experienced by a victim during the actual assault is immediately replaced by guilt 
and self-blame, with this effect being the hardest to overcome specifically for women with strict religious backgrounds condemning non-marital relations. This is exactly the sort of person Jane was, and so in addition to looking for more confession out of Sean, Major also wants closure for Jane, in the form of her abuser explicitly saying that he forced and completely took advantage of her against her will. But as we're seeing, Sean can't quite commit to saying he was fully in the wrong here. She's her dealing with her lustful mind. She's, yeah, she has a lustful mind. I mean, honestly, she battles with all time. Her and I, her and others, she shelters herself inside because of her lustful mind. And I want to help her with that if any way I can before I actually surrender. Sean talks a bit about the things that have gone wrong in his life to lead him to this point, and then he starts to break down, which is a huge emotional shift from the unbothered demeanor he's been keeping up. I'm sorry you're going through everything. You're still a human. You know what I mean? It does matter, Sean. It does. And your whole moment might be right now. You've given her peace, right? You give her peace by being honest, right? Do you agree with me? I know because I know what she wanted. She wanted you to be honest so that she can feel like a good girl because she is one. Major continues to hear Sean out while soothing and showing concern, which are important steps in continuing to build trust and rapport that will pay off down the road. Tomorrow, it don't matter. Life, to me, I've died a long time ago on the cross. Whatever happens to me, it does not matter. It's temporary life anyways. Okay. She tries to get Sean to see how his actions will have a long-term negative effect on his victim, but he still finds a way to avoid this mentally. You think this will impact her for a long time? It'll clear her emotional thoughts. She'll be able to move on and stay focused now. You think it will cause her some trust issues? She's always had trust issues. Anyway. You think they'll be worse? Can't get no worse. She's still single. Never been married. 36. She has really bad trust issues. Major is about to shift the conversation to Elizabeth once more. She tells Sean that when she says they always figure things out in the end, she really means it and lets him know that this can be a one-conversation deal if they can manage to sort everything out properly. We can't find Elizabeth. We'll find her, but we can't right now. Hey, look at me. Look at me. I need your help. Why not? Okay, I need your help. I'm not here to judge you. I'm not going to leave your side. We're going to help it. We're going to, I'm going to ask you for your help here. Okay? Are you hearing me okay? Are you understanding me when I talk? Can you help me? Major remains firm, letting Sean know that the truth will eventually catch up to him. But interestingly, instead of intimidating him with a demand that he reveal where Elizabeth is, she gives him a small feeling of power by sincerely requesting his help. 
Sean is, of course, unwilling to come right out and say what he did at first, but the interrogator keeps appealing to his emotions. You came in and you said, I don't care about me anymore. I died a long time ago. You're trying to help the situation with, uh, let's just put it in perspective, with what you've described with Um, as far as doing things wrong, that's, that's pretty much, there it is, right? So really, anything that's happened with Elizabeth is the same exact thing. Am I right? Am I right or wrong? Don't do the same thing? Not, ex- I mean, I mean, a level of seriousness. It's, it's, it can't be a whole lot different than that. Tell me how. Sean remains ambiguous, trying to measure what the police already know. But he's all too aware that the Jane and Elizabeth situations aren't equal because one involves murder and Major tries to unpack his vague statements. I don't think she's okay. We're past that, I think. We're past that. You know she's not okay. What? You know she's not okay. Pretty much. You already know. That's what I believe. That's what I believe. Um, I, I know. Maybe she's better off, though. Hey, she's tormented. There's some things that I know about her. That life. I do. I do. Mentally abused. Uh, that's just some little piece of it. Yeah. It's bad. Oh, people. We can tell Sean is getting closer to that confession, as he's already making justifications for ending her life. However, he suddenly decides to tell a story about his mother saying spiteful words after being scammed. The interrogator's response is measured. There was this lady. buy some magazines. She bought over magazines, right, to my mom. And my mom paid her. Well, no, she ordered magazines. She didn't actually just get them. She had to order them. So she paid like $40 for these magazines, and then she never got them. My mom's supposed to be a little Christian woman and stuff. Yeah. Talking about that. She'll get hers. You know, someone's going to catch up with her someday. Yeah. Wishing her dead. You know what I think I understand about you? You're like a perfect example of watching the people who matter to you let you down and watching what it creates in you. Now, when I first heard Sean go on this rant, I thought this magazine seller anecdote was just a tangent to stall for time. However, Sean is going to explain the horrifying significance of this story later on. So keep this incident in mind. For now, Major continues to remind Sean of the people worried about Elizabeth who desperately need answers. She has a mom. She has a mom. You help me? What's your mom like? Um, she was like a failure. Devastated. Yeah. She wants to bury your daughter. Sean continues to struggle with his disbelief that they haven't already found the body. I know you just give me a chance. What? You're giving me a chance. You already know. I am? 
you're giving me a chance. Can you take me to her? You've already found her. I haven't found her. No. No. Because you act like something you're just happened to her already. Hey. I don't know. You're trying to find somebody that did something to her. More important than finding what happened to her is finding her body. Can you do that much for me? Obviously, investigators would eventually want to know the details of exactly what happened to Elizabeth. But by boiling down her request to just this one simple action of showing them the body, Major focuses Sean's attention on a singular, tangible goalpost, despite the storm of conflicted thoughts rushing through his head at this moment. But Sean defies expectations. It's like the interrogators have gotten him 99% of the way towards confessing about Elizabeth. But instead of giving them that last 1% they need, he switches gears and clearly implies that there are other victims. I might not be able to take you to her, maybe someone else or others. It matters. It does. How many are there? He's rapidly going back and forth with indecision, seeming completely lost on what course of action to take and knowing that there's no going back if he says too much. Sean expresses some misgivings, but Major reassures him that she will support him. I'm not going to leave your side, okay? Believe that. We can shed some light on why things happened, right? We can dissect her personality. We can figure out a few things about her, okay? Yeah, we can explain. We, we can put some value to what happened, okay? Will you take me to her? You and me. Making Sean feel like he has a lifeline in this stressful situation is key, and Major has repeatedly shown him that she is trustworthy and cares about his well-being. Sean starts to leak some of his true feelings about Elizabeth, and his words feel more on the bitter and disdainful side. Everybody acts like there's something already wrong with her. She's, she'd be sad for her. Be sad for her. Yeah. That's what she wants everybody to do. So sorry for her. Just grow up. Major stays quiet and lets Sean rant, and we can hear much of his motivation and his vindictive words. She's mentioned I need to 
Here we see the first indicator of one of Sean's biggest core beliefs. He would later claim in a letter that government assistance took his victims' minds. We'll dive deeper into this fixation later. Here's where things take a completely unexpected twist. Despite his reluctance to reveal where Elizabeth is, Sean suddenly spills the beans about another girl entirely. Will you take me there? Where she is? Where are you going to take me to Mansfield? Where there's another girl? Where there is a girl. But not. She's a what? These right here on my forehead. Alright. What happened to her? Hey, are you okay? What happened? She's the one that scratched you like that? All right, what's her name? Candace. Candace? Cunningham. Cunningham? Okay. Why'd you put her in the woods? Because you're afraid? Huh? Were you afraid? Is that why you put her in the woods? Candace Cunningham lived in a vacant home with Sean for a while. Her mother didn't worry when her daughter went silent for a few months, as the girl had told her mother she was planning to move from Mansfield to North Carolina soon and wouldn't be available much. One thing she did share with her mom, though, was that she had met the perfect guy and was excited at the prospect of getting married. The next time she heard news about her daughter was when the police knocked on her door following Sean's confession. Candace had never been reported missing. Her loved ones have described the young woman as a loving and determined person who unfortunately got caught up in the wrong crowd and made some bad choices. She had two kids, but both were taken away in 2009 by Children's Services, possibly due to her drug use. Her family had hoped that things would change for the better when Candace moved to Mansfield for a fresh start. She made some friends who remember that the 4-foot, 9-inch, 100-pound girl had a loud personality and would always help neighbors out and make them laugh, despite her own struggles. 
When Candace and Sean got together, these friends noticed that they were inseparable, but unfortunately, volatile. Although the exact status of their relationship was a mystery to friends, Candace had her Facebook account set to married on Christmas Day of 2015, a few short months after sharing a photo of Sean and saying when he asked her to marry him, she replied, I told you that I was going to be there to the end. The interrogator asks where the murder took place. Okay. She didn't get down the street. Took her ass out. Accident. It's strange how Sean says that he had already threatened Candace of what he would do, but then makes it out to be an accident. He then starts crying, but it's difficult to discern what he's talking about or if it even relates to Candace. Sean describes the location where he put the body, and then the detective begins establishing what exactly Sean did to Candace. Okay, when you said it was an accident, you guys got into it, and then how did how did you do it? Like she kept attacking me. Okay. Notice that no matter how many people Sean hurts, he can always somehow find a way to believe they're the one who wasn't stable. He frames his crimes by saying how someone provoked him and caused him to respond the way he did. Something he never seems to think deeply about is why he's the common denominator in all these tragedies. Nighttime or during the day? Yeah, three o'clock in the morning, I hit in the face with a bag of tobacco. Understand? Yeah. I did. She hit you in the face with a bag of tobacco? Yeah. Okay. I was dead asleep. What'd you do that? We on the arm. What? Everything's up. Everything's okay. What'd you do that for? Yeah. Roll me a cigarette. That's what she said. You want me up to roll you a cigarette? Sean actually agreed to demonstrate on video his method of strangulation. Which would be easier for you to kind of show it or to have like a like a stuffed animal, doll, teddy bear thing to however you had that? I can go grab one from these guys or something. 
I was thinking I'd do a straight on you. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you want to do. Look at that big smile. <laughs> Candace. Cunningham, right? Candace was. She was. I tried to keep her calm down a lot, and I didn't really mean to. I fought with her for like three days. So I wrapped her up in the blanket. I kept her around for three days trying to get her. We even would walk around town every night after our big fights. And then we go to bed that third night, and it's almost like she just keeps agging it on. Okay. And then she woke you up in the night when she smacked you in the face with that tobacco bag. Yes, then what happened? And then it's like, oh, this is. I'm like, oh, okay. So these past three days, I mean, you just you just want me to finish you, you know? And I grabbed her and that's when I choked her. She passed out. I grabbed her from behind, passed out. I mean, I, I was. I don't know, I just finished her. Candace was probably more of an anger to tire of all of her lies, so I just tortured her for about three days. The same way that you tortured No, I didn't have sex with her. The, I was beyond that. What were you doing? I guess we really didn't torture for three days because we were getting out of our arguments, right? little choking things and then we'd go walk around town right you know what I mean yeah she could have easily just went and like hollered help or anything anytime so but we end up going back to the house still and then she still wants to start arguing and stuff and like she wanted it I mean what am I supposed to do people who actually want to die and they keep society. Brian ended up fighting all this stuff in court for this reason because some of his cases dropped. Maybe not. But still, something. Because we're unable to work. Really need to get something done So you feel like, I'm going to paraphrase, so correct me if I say something wrong, okay? You feel like they're a burden to society. They're doing they're, nothing. They're, they're handicapped. You know what I mean? Unless there's a medical reason. Okay. So it's the cop out and say, oh, I can't, you know, I can't deal with the customers. She sliced her belly. During the f argument that you had with her, how deep was the slice? 
it bled a little bit. Okay, did Candace do that or did you? Candace did. You'd be a witness tomorrow, it don't matter, but I mean, there are so many people that heard Candace talking about just wishing she had dead, tired of she had she throws out the car out. Oh, so sorry for me. Sean is asked if he felt relieved after killing Candace. With Candace, I was like, you finally got what you wanted. On September 13th, Sean led investigators to Candace's body. This is the audio of that trip. Because we have cadaver dogs, if I need to have one of the dogs meet us over there to make it easier, we can do that. If you don't know where... I mean, should it be too hard to figure out when we get there? Police say Candace was dumped in the woods in June of 2016. She and Sean had been seeing each other for about seven months before her death. And then when the incident happened where she died, you kept her in there overnight. And then the next day you took her to the brush. And then a couple days later is when you started the fire. Yeah, I took her in the woods. I had her even cover her. I couldn't look at her, you know. What did you cover her up with? Blanket. Uh, since it was dark, then I, I took the blanket just in case, like DNA and stuff. You know, I was like, well. That night, you kept her in the house. Yeah, it was about four in the morning. Tobacco at me about three in the morning. Right. Okay. So you kept her in the house overnight, and then the next day. Did you go out and scope out where you were going to put her, or did you just took her back there? I just took her back there. And about what time was it you took her back there? Once it got dark. Okay. About 10. About 10 at night? Okay, so the incident happened on the 16th, and then on the 17th, yes. you take her back, and you're going to show us where. And then she across the creek and up straight up the hill about... Between 10 to 15 feet, there's a big shrub. He brought in a blanket to get her here, and then he was afraid there was going to be DNA on the blanket, so he brought the blanket back, put it in the house, and then a couple days later, he torched the house. One of our people. Yeah. Yes. I walked backwards and kind of walked backwards. Dragged her backwards. So you didn't fall down that embankment or anything? Matter of fact, I did. Yeah, I was going to say, it's kind of hard just to walk. Kind of just empty-handed. I, uh... Yeah, I'm just amazed that you were able to go down that steep embankment <laughs> with with a, with somebody in tow. Yeah. Well, she was pretty alive. But, yeah. yeah. It seems like the last guy was a lot heavier. Back in the interrogation room, the detective attempts to transition Sean's confession about Candace into asking who else they can go and find. Sean replies with a morbid question. How many before I with objections? How many what? How many people before I get a lead rejected? Let's not worry about any of that. Who else? Well, I already mentioned another one. Who are you thinking of? 
Major has managed to slowly get her foot in the door through kindness, repeated emphasis on honesty, and remaining neutral and non-judgmental. One by one, Sean's secrets are spilled as a result of her patience, yet she remains calm and collected, not betraying any emotion as she continues her calculated questions. says he and Elizabeth played a game of Yahtzee at her apartment before heading to his place for barbecue chicken. see Sean's habit of judging the worth of other people's lives rearing its head again. Elizabeth didn't have a job, lived alone, and had been going through a particularly rough time just before her death because she was forced to give up her cat after proving unable to take proper care of it. There seems to be a trend in Sean's victims. He often selects people who are more isolated from friends and family or mentally troubled, people who wouldn't immediately be reported missing and people who are looking for someone, a friend, to talk to. Sean's just told Detective Major about two people he murdered, and now she goes to get him snacks. She's picked up on exactly who Sean is, someone who attacks when he feels challenged or things don't go his way. She'll stay on his good side, to the point where he will continuously request to speak with her. This loyalty and cooperation he affords Detective Major may seem like a killer who just wants to keep talking about himself. But it's a stark contrast to how he treated the initial interrogator. In these clips, it seems that Sean is griping about presumably the first guy's attitude. Do you feel better that you've talked to me? Yeah, I appreciate you coming in here, not him. We weren't going to get nowhere. 
Well, sometimes it's, it's personalities, or if he already knows something, and you know you're, you don't want to say it, but. Um, but he's lying to me too. So I, you know, I don't know what was said because I wasn't I'm, in here. But I'm not saying he was lying. But right, because he's a straightforward guy. Lack of information. The other guy's temper was getting a little carried away. You'll recall that the first interrogator was relatively respectful of Sean during their conversation and only really pointed out his clear deception or feigned ignorance that what he'd done was wrong a few times, such as when he kept offering alternatives for where Elizabeth might be. We still got the issue with Elizabeth. How many issues with Elizabeth? You said you helped her find peace. You set her free. That's what she said. Yeah, how'd you help her? Or put my hand listening to everybody in confusions. People always have opinions. Everybody need to get away. Get away where? She talk about going anywhere? No. Some family in Florida. Yeah. She ain't got no way to get down to Florida. I think she's still probably around here. Sean's offended reaction, which made him shut down completely to this first interrogator, shows us just how important control is to him. In the clips that follow, we'll see how Major stays on Sean's good side and garners confession after confession out of an initially uncooperative suspect. First, he finishes the story of what happened with Elizabeth. Yahtzee, Yahtzee. 11 o'clock at night. So you guys played Yahtzee and then that happened? She couldn't sleep, so she called me. Okay. After Elizabeth's call, the duo met at the YMCA and walked back to his place. I was showing her around that she wanted, she insisted to look around, right? Okay. choking her? Yeah. Did you choke her from the front or choke her from behind?
even with friends, like guy friends, whatever. You know what I mean? They start talking about killing herself. Well, we wait on, you know, joke around, see yeah. whatever, you know. But now it's to the point, it's like, okay, let's see exactly how much they really do want to die. You know what I mean? So yeah. we're a little feeling now, right? Yeah. She fought it, like, not what you want and then she like started blowing up like she took it out of proportion like I was just joking because of the wake up strangle okay strangle like you know what I mean and she got all serious Sean has said that while he strangled Elizabeth she was saying forgive him Lord for he don't know what he does there wasn't no calming her down she You panicked, and then you just did it again? Make another choice. To slow, like, calm her down. I mean, she was just like, moving around and stuff like that. Throw her on the bed, and like. So, did you strangle her again? Is that how she died, or is there another way? That's the way. Once again, Sean was more than happy to demonstrate his method of strangulation on video. Okay, this is Detective Major. We have Detective Evans in the room, Sean Great in the room. It's September 15, 2016, time 17.04. Sean's going to demonstrate the way uh, he uses uh, strangulation in cases that we have been discussing. Elizabeth, right? It was kind of shocking, right? I was just joking. We were just joking, like how she wished she kind of would die, you know what I mean? I was like, so, so I'll, I'll help you. I just go like this, you know what I mean? Like, actually mm -hmm. forward and yeah. up at the same time. Right. And she kind of just like whacked my hands and like started flipping out and stuff like that to the point where I had to just like grab her and I just would lean forward and just press, you know what I mean? Okay. Mm -hmm. All right, that explains. That one, the little bit. fall down. Mm -hmm. You just gotta go down with her? Uh, yeah, I just, I'll take her down and finish. And even after she stopped breathing, I held on. Till she messed her pants, pretty much. Okay. You know what I mean? I didn't release. Okay. I continued. Sean says that everything just happened so fast that he had only met her just a few days before. So in summary, his explanation for this murder essentially boils down to Elizabeth had supposedly talked about wanting to die. He wanted to test how much this was true. He started strangling her, but once she fought back, he tried to give her a hug and tell her she does want to live. But at that point, she told him to get off because he had just tried to hurt her. He says, quote, She just kept going on and on, and it's like, Jesus, save me, and it's like, you're not saved. My compassion wanted to just free her from this world. Sean says at that point, it was like way too late, and so he finished strangling her. I'm like, Elizabeth was more different because I played around with her. She got scared and just jumped the gun. Messed up, I thought we were better than that. I put her in the closet, threw a bunch of clothes in the closet and shot it. And I've just been killing a lot of flies. Opening the window, letting the flies out. 
original stink is what, what does. Yeah. It soaks in. The smell soaking in everything else, though. Clothes and things, I guess. Are there any other girls in the house right now? Yeah. One down in the basement. Down in the basement? Where's what's she in? She's down in the basement. She's just down in the basement? Yeah. Tell me about it. She just led me on to the point of there was no stopping and it really irritated me. Perhaps Sean has just mentally given up at this point. He knows they're going to search the abandoned home, and so he just comes clean about yet another victim with no resistance. Major is caught off guard by the sudden and easy admission. But she will now start learning more about another unfortunate woman who sadly didn't make it away from Sean with her life. What's her name? Stacy. Stacy? What's her last name? Sean can't even recall the full name of the woman he killed. How did you meet her? Okay. When did that happen? Here's September. Today's the 13th. Tuesday the 13th. So you've had... Um... Since Sunday the 11th. What day do you think this happened with Stacy? Probably Thursday. You heard right. Less than a week earlier, Sean had taken yet another victim's life. With so little time between these recent violent attacks, who knows how many more women could have fallen prey to Sean had Jane not gotten help in time. The Stacy Sean is referring to is 43-year-old Stacy Stanley, sometimes known as Stacy Hicks. She'd been battling to stay off heroin for six months leading up to her disappearance. One day she happened to get into some car trouble and was grateful when someone appearing to be a good Samaritan showed up to lend a helping hand. This was September 8th. What's she look like? Sweet lady. Sweet lady? Yeah. Stacy had driven from her town to Ashland for some shopping that day. She got her nails done at her favorite place. It was shaping up to be a great night, but unfortunately, Stacy's parade was about to be rained on by a flat tire. And, well, actual rain. Having to pull over alone in the dark was less than ideal for the woman, but after calling her son, who said he would send a family friend over to help, she stopped at a BP gas station and waited. How did the conversation go that she ends up coming back to your place? Did you just walk up to her and start talking? Well, it was raining. I had an umbrella. I was going to give her my umbrella. And then keep walking because she was standing outside. And then she had a flat tire in her car. You may give you a, a hand. Like, well, I have someone coming. Okay. It's only one man job. I went ahead and walked down the circle. Okay. And then back. She was still there waiting. But uh, then I went back up there in about 10 minutes to 
someone showed up. Because of a mix-up, there was a delay in Stacy's assistance arriving, but she told her son that a different, nice gentleman was trying to help her out. When Stacy's family acquaintance arrived as requested, he was surprised to find the woman already accompanied by Sean, who ended up doing most of the work changing the tire once he was lent the tools. When the job was done, Stacy and Sean went inside the store and the family friend took his leave, observing that Stacy seemed comfortable around this stranger. It was around 10.40 p.m. when the clerk noticed the pair enter, and Stacy took a phone call where she told her son she was fine and would be heading home. She proceeded to buy Sean a cup of coffee to thank him in what the clerk described as a chipper good mood. They then walked out together. After Sean had got some time, Doing that baby. So we started hanging out. She came in, and everything was fine. I mean, we ended up kissing. Okay. Just kind of just happened. I don't know. Okay. It just went all bad. In Sean's interviews, there's tons of empty silence, but Major never jumps in to fill that uncomfortable gap. She simply sits back and let Sean add more and more details to his accounts. We can see at this point that Sean must have had an undeniable charisma to him. One girl who knew him as a teenager has explained, He was charming, he was always smiling, and he had those big blue eyes. All the girls liked Sean. However, his mother has interestingly clarified, Yes, he's good looking, but the devil's good looking too. He ain't no red horns and all that stuff. You find out he's charming, and of course that can charm the pants off anybody. Stacy may have been enamored to spend time with the kind man who had just gone out of his way to do a good deed for her. But unfortunately, she was about to be introduced to his dark side. While she was there, did you decide you're going this that you were gonna you were gonna kill her at what point? I didn't yeah, I didn't know. It wasn't planned, but um, the point is when She just gave me these flashbacks to all these other women and just that's probably broken my heart to really break it down. Okay. Flashbacks like my mom really, I mean, hate to blame people, but I know. Someone has to be blamed. I mean I'm taking my blame. I know you are. Sean's issues with his mother are a whole other rabbit hole that we will dig into later on. But for now, He'll offer more explanation on why he felt Stacy had to lose her life. Uh, I'm just yes. a kiss, right? And started making her up and everything was fine, right? Then she started playing all in this. I'm like, oh. Like she didn't want to go farther than that? Yeah, and that's when I called her out on sugar daddy. I said, quit. But if I listed out 40 bucks, maybe you'd do something. You know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah, no matter what it is, it's going to get bad. There's probably just... Sean again transitions straight into how she reminded him of his mother. My mom, she used to go to the bartender. She'd bring home guys all the time. I came in a job, four years old. In the end, it seemed to be a multitude of strange factors that made Sean snap that day. 
I mentioned that she had sugar daddies. I called like it in a way. I brought that up. And she just straight up lied to me. Just like playing off like she's all innocent. I just seen her. I just seen how she just played this dude about changing her tire. And I'll get over me sometime and all this, you know what I mean? Because she was waiting on this guy to come and change tire. Which I'm going to change the tire with his tool stuff while she was talking to him. You know what I mean? So, whatever, you know what I mean? I'm used to that type of life. So, did you feel like she had already sealed her fate when you watched her be manipulated to that man? No. Once you lied to me. About when you called her sugar, when you called her out on it? Yeah. So, you. So this guy. And she just took defense already, like, hey, he's just a friend. I said, just like everyone else, all the other women, they, they do not know that the more honest they are to me, the better we get along. You know what I mean? No matter what situation, just be honest. You know what I mean? It's really not clear why Shawn would assume this man was her sugar daddy in the first place. Why did you have to f with her? In the same way he had with Jane, Sean videotaped his assault of Stacy on his cell phone. After he killed her, he wrapped her up, dragged her body to the basement, and covered it with trash. Yes, this was the same property where Jane was rescued, and Elizabeth's body was hidden. So in reality, when officers went to search, they were faced with a terribly gruesome and tragic scene. Everything was as Sean described with Stacy's decomposing body being discovered on the cold concrete floor buried in debris. And upstairs, a closet covered in duct tape with a deplorable smell emanating from within held Elizabeth's body under a pile of clothing. Along with the stun gun that's been mentioned, investigators found brass knuckles that they believe could have been used on the victims. The following clip is Sean's visual demonstration of how he killed Stacy. Yeah. And she put her tongue out of her mouth? Oh, no, no, just, just the pressure that makes people's tongues stick out. And then after they die, it just makes them still. But her tongue stays out of her mouth. All right, did she try to fight you when you were strangling her? Yeah. Tell me about that. She maced you? Well, that's what happened, yeah. She maced me, right? And I just snapped. As well as the other things, like. When you had sex with her, did she want to, or did, did you have to make her? No, I didn't have sex with her after that. I, I made her actually. Stacy was reported missing on September 10th. 
After not hearing from the woman following her flat tire incident, her family grew extremely worried. The next day, her car was found abandoned. Sean has admitted to driving the vehicle after killing her and also taking $43 from her purse. In an odd but not surprising addition, Sean apparently quipped in one interview that Stacy told on herself about getting an assistance check each month. Given Sean's track record, we already know that this is something that really sets him off. How long did you keep Stacy before she... Oh, just about an hour. Just about an hour? Short time. Yeah, she put up, acted up, so... You didn't have a choice? Do you really, I mean, think about it. Did you have, did you really have a choice whether to kill her or, or not, rationally? Looking back at it, do you she have a choice? Where I was. Um, oh, she knew where you were, meaning living. she knew, and you had already made her give you, like, force that on her. So, is that what you're meaning? She was free and clear to go. Because she told me she had a grandchild, you know, and everything. Now here's where things take a turn. Sean will slip up a bit when talking about how many total victims there are. He says four. Four. Four what? Four women? Okay, I'm missing one then. We've got Candace, Elizabeth, Stacy, and who else? Another Candace? No, Stacy. Oh, okay. So I'm, I'm wrong, actually. I haven't really thought that. You know what I mean? I was wrong in saying four. I thought that it's like four. Maybe it's like, because I haven't kept track or anything. Maybe I was thinking about victim. Okay. Sean may have played it off, but the truth is, his list of victims isn't over quite yet. And at this point, Major really has no way of knowing just how deep the iceberg is. Just when it seems like he's finally come clean, he tacks on another crime to his quickly growing history. Major will continue to see what other secrets she can get from Sean, but first, he reveals more details about the psychology of his attack on Jane. Were you going to do the same thing to What's the difference? Because she'll help people. Because she helps she people? She'll know to help people. Yeah. And I was told not to. Just so many things, reasons not to. Okay. For her. Even though she was mentioned she wanted to die before. Sean's reasoning for why he wouldn't kill Jane is just another example of his belief that he is essentially someone who doles out justice or so-called mercy to those he sees as lost causes. He seems to feel he has the right to judge people's morality and worthiness to life. That being said, with how close together his crimes with Elizabeth, Stacy, and Jane were, it's also very possible that Sean was on a spree and that Jane wouldn't have made it much longer before his inevitable snap. 
He continues to tell far-fetched stories about instances where he thought Jane was showing her lustful desires. What did you tell the boys that playing tennis? When she was playing tennis, you could tell. She knew she was so frustrated she couldn't even play tennis. She wanted, she wanted to go back to the apartment, actually. There's a couple of instances. The first one, we were playing with this neighborhood kid, and he's having a hard time catching it. Well, I was, we had peaches, uh, juggle. exhibiting many patterns of thinking common with offenders. He assumes he knows what Jane was thinking and feeling on the inside and is essentially saying, I could tell she wanted me to do it. He blames what he did to her on her supposed provocative comments, even though he can't even remember what he thinks Jane said. All this serves to once again minimize his crime by suggesting she wanted it to happen all along. She worked in my way. It was the same thing when we were playing badminton, right? It was the way she was hitting it, I couldn't get under it to bring it up. I kept hitting it down. But dang. So we had a we had a good run. I just couldn't get it up. She looks at me and smiled, like, oh you couldn't get it up. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I just kinda of rolled with it. Well, you know, other times at the table, you know, people would say Stuff like that, and she would catch right on, you know, the, the warpness of it. Yeah. Keep in mind that Jane was already in her mid-thirties when she met Sean. Assuming Sean's stories have any truth to them here, it's still obvious that a mature woman like Jane, regardless of her religion or innocence, would be able to understand adult humor. Sean is really grasping at straws to provide any proof that she ever desired to take things further with him. Yeah. We just got done playing tennis. She was talking about she wanted to play putt putt golf. And I don't think she was talking about putt putt golf. The way she said it, she maybe something like, so we were just like, yeah. Sean also talks about wanting to get Jane pregnant. And we talked about abortion and stuff. And I was pretty sure, you know, she said she would get an abortion. No. She's definitely against that, right? I would get her pregnant. She'd at least be able to have something to focus on instead of everybody else's business. But now I kind of think, well, she doesn't because of the child. She, she'd resent, probably, and she wouldn't know how to be a parent. Right. Her apartment is full of Bible verses. And I think, what is she hiding from? At one point, the interrogator tries to give Jane some props for having the bravery and wits to escape, 
and Sean immediately interrupts to take responsibility for this accomplishment as well. She had some courage there, didn't she? I told her to. I told her, you better find a way out of here or I'm going to kill you. Did you mean it? No. No. I just was trying to boost her to go to, like, just... A prosecutor would later give his opinion on why Sean didn't kill Jane, saying, Her lack of struggle made him stop. The evidence will show that Elizabeth screamed and died. Stacy maced him and died. Jane Doe accepted her fate, made no struggle, and was allowed to live. Moving on to September 15th, Major met Sean once again to talk. She asks if there's anything else that he's thought about and needs to get off his chest. Sean says he needs to think and get the year right. It's been 2006. Okay. Five or four. I can't place the time. Maybe it's like 2005. It's a cold case. They've already found her. Okay. Where did that happen? It's only about four minutes into this tape, and Sean has already admitted his involvement in an unsolved decade-old cold case, with almost no prompting at all. The interrogator's ability to build trust with Sean has played a big part in opening the floodgates on a once tight-lipped suspect. Sean is never quite certain what this first victim's name was, but he believed it was Dana. This woman's skeletal remains were found in a wooded area of Marion County in 2007 which was probably about a year after she'd actually died. She'd remained an unidentified Jane Doe until Sean's confession. He later explained that he was hesitant to reveal this particular murder was because he knew expanding the time frame of his crimes by this big of a margin would make people wonder if there were tons of other victims during those gap years. In 2019, authorities would finally be able to use DNA from the victim's family members along with facial reconstruction analysis and isotope testing to identify her. And it turns out that her name was indeed Dana Nicole Lowry, who was only 23 at the time of her death. Remember Sean's story way back about his mother wishing ill will upon a magazine saleswoman? Here's where things come full circle. Tell me what happened. Well, it's kind of weird how it happened. In a way, I feel like I had to do, do something. Okay. Get out of control, this lady selling magazines are supposedly for a college, but never really did come through. Okay. Order, pushing around, collecting money. Those are fake orders. And my mom paid her, and she's just waiting on money and money, and so that's all she complains about. Why well, I ran, I found her. Okay. I found her, and she tried to sell me magazines as well. So that's how I knew it was her. It's fascinating to discover that Sean referenced this woman earlier on without betraying any emotion of what the true ending to her tale was. In 2006, Dana had been reported missing after she abruptly stopped making phone calls to her two young daughters back in Louisiana while on the road selling her magazines. Her parents were already deceased at this time, and so the father of their girls says he doesn't know who reported her missing. He himself had just assumed she moved on with her life, as he says that's just the kind of person she was. Authorities had no leads until this very moment. So I took her with me to um, 
my grandparents' house where I was living. I was remodeling at my grandparents' house. Started arguing with her, like, dude, con, you're just gonna take, you know, me you're gonna take my money and run. I said, no. I said, yeah, you are, because you just, you did my mom's too. And she pretty much can, like, give you over to God. She knew God's gonna take care of you. I know I'm not God. I mean, I know that. It's interesting that Sean frames this murder as a sort of revenge against Dana for what he believed was a scam. However, earlier you'll recall that he admonished his mother for hoping that the saleswoman would get what was coming to her. Sean says it was almost like it was meant to be when he found Dana again, just a few months after she had initially sold to his mom. And how did you get her from there to your grandparents' house? I just asked her what she was doing. I wanted to take a break. Take a drive with me. Well, actually, to go get the money, that's why. Okay. Yeah. I asked her what she was doing before that. She was, she was uh, ready to call it a day, so I just asked her if she wanted to hang out, go out to where I was staying and get money. Okay. Which I lied. I mean, I, my attention, she's already irritated me. Yeah. Someone that I was supposed to be careful. Well, first we sat in the kitchen there on the bar stools and just sit there for a minute. And I felt her, I felt her bullshit and I was just feeling raged. Okay. So I said, hey, come on in back here. Show you my ball cards. She did. I have all kinds of ball cards. Used to. Like baseball cards collection? Yeah, all sports. Oh, okay. Yeah. And there she comes. She's like, oh, neat. So that's when I fronted her. So you're going to rip me off like you did my mom? What did she say? She said, who's your mom? I said, oh, so you do it a lot to people. Yeah, you know I mean? She tried to get past me. How did she die? I strangled her. Oh, wait, no. I didn't. I strangled her first. And then I dragged her down to the basement after she passed out. Then I panicked. I ran upstairs. <laughs> I grabbed the knife. I stabbed her in the neck. She's in your bedroom, and you are. Face to face, she tries to get out of the bedroom. Tell us yeah. what happens from there. I back her out, I turn her around. She comes towards me, I knock her hands around, knock her whole body around, and just grabbed her like she just was meant to be choked out. Okay. I mean, it fell right in my hands. Okay. I set her back, laid down, and I actually laid down with her. We was laying down. Side by side. And is that upstairs or downstairs? At what point did you upstairs. stab her in the neck? 
Was she still alive then or not alive? She woke up. She woke up from the strangulation? Downstairs. downstairs. She woke up downstairs. So when you took her downstairs, did you take her down thinking she was dead? No. No, because I, I knew before that was just a, she, that was just a little temporary, like a pass out. Okay. They're dealing with friends and playing around pass out games. So you went downstairs, and then what happened? She woke up. Yeah, I panicked. I didn't know what to do. I ran upstairs and grabbed a knife in the kitchen. You know, that's the first thing I did when I went downstairs. Stabbed her in the neck. I didn't know what to do. And you said the knife was a serrated knife or a straight blade knife? I believe it was a straight knife. It was like a like a, like a, like a knife you cut onions with. Okay. All right, the time is 5-12 or 17-12 hours. Date September 15th, Detective Major, Detective Evans, and Sean Great at the Ashland County Sheriff's Office. Sean goes on to describe how he put Dana's body in his trunk dumped it, and then burned the blankets she'd been wrapped in. Was she ever clothes on? No. They were soft. They were trenched. Stabbed her here. Stabbed her in the neck. However, before he took her body out of the house, Sean actually had company over. He said, uh, Dana, taken to the basement in the afternoon, then he had a bonfire at his house that he evening slash night and she was still in the basement so he put a couch in front of the door so in case someone had to like take a piss or something they wouldn't go into the house and then stumble across her in the basement major asks sean to tell her details that nobody else would know so she can confirm he was really the one who killed dana i did go back after a few months and i burned a fire caught her on fire, just burn up a little evidence if just in case if there was. I've been paranoid, just beating, like, up, beating myself up all the whole time. Like, I don't know what to do. Now, having four murdered confessions in her lap, Major takes some time to look into Sean's headspace. It's not every day you get the chance to sit down with a serial killer, and it's clear she wants to learn as much about his psyche as she can. I know you have a conscience, and I know the things that bother you. I can, I can see that. I can see, I can see that there. Yeah, I think it's just all the other people's weirdness kind of just gathered. I just, I try to justify things in weird ways. We turn weird things and justify and make it look, I don't know. I'm really warped, I think, though, damaged. Sean even gives a bit of insight into why he confessed to Dana's case, even though he may not have otherwise been linked to it. He says it was the one eating him 